Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, as we continue our journey through this book. You know, we're coming to a point in this book of Acts where uh, it's, it's a turning point for the story that Luke is telling us. Uh, this is one of the little church vignettes that he likes to give. It gives you a little more detail of what's going on uh, within the church itself. Uh, we've been looking at various things, like last week we saw how the apostles were arrested and beaten for continuing to preach the gospel. And we saw the attack from without uh, occur uh, upon the church, upon these apostles as they fulfilled the ministry that Jesus had called them to. And um, this is kind of one of those last scenes before the, um, Luke shows us how the message begins to go outside of Jerusalem. And so, um, so far he's, he's highlighted the growth of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, it's been roughly, some people can guess, you know, people that are smarter than me, that it's been about three years or so since the church had been birthed at this point. And so we're, you know, the church is still very young. It's, it's experiencing new uh, situations and encountering various things that they're having to deal with. And we've seen that the apostles were commissioned by Jesus to be his witnesses in their very homeland of Jerusalem, but also uh, extending out into Judea and Samaria. And they've been very diligent to do so in Jerusalem. Day in and day out, they were going to the temple and teaching and preaching. We see them uh, in homes, from going from home to home daily, teaching the message. And so they've been faithful in this message. And, and the enemy doesn't like it. The religious leaders of the day didn't like it. They've been trying to stop them. But we've come to this place, too, where you've seen uh, the church grow and multiply, uh, you know, uh, from... An, a, an initial starting point of about 3,000 people to well over 10,000. And uh, we've seen, last week, we saw people being brought in from outside of the city. We saw uh, people who had heard the message of the gospel and heard what was going on within Jerusalem, grabbing their neighbors, getting them to where they could hear God's word being taught, his uh, testimonies uh, proclaimed, and where they could receive a touch from the Lord as well. Those that were hurting, that were sick, that were broken. And so we, we see this growing and this expanding church. And as we look at our passage today, we're going to see um, some growing pains that begin to develop again within the life of the church. Uh, I was thinking of analogies, and, and one that came to mind was speed bumps. We all love them, right? They're our favorite thing to encounter as we're going full speed down a street and we realize, oh my gosh, there's a speed bump. And you slam on the brakes so you don't just tear up the underside of your car or the front end. But those speed bumps are there for a reason. One, they probably were put up to protect somebody, one. And two, to cause us to be aware of our surroundings. And so... In these growing pains, I just saw them kind of speed bumps. We see the church 
full steam ahead, growing, multiplying. And then Ananias and Sapphira, or actually the religious leaders. Then it grows and they keep going, and then Ananias and Sapphira. And then it's growing, and then it's the religious leaders again. And then it's growing, and then we have what we find today. And, and growing paint, they're, they're normal. They're an aspect of life, if we look at that analogy. But speed bumps, they're, they're, they're put there for a reason along the way. And as we've seen the church grow, they've encountered a few of them. Let's look at our passage this morning in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. Let's read. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte, a proselyte, and that's that word up all the time, from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And the great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We see this close-up now again of the church. Of this interaction between this multicultural church that had developed in Jerusalem. Now they were all Jews that were coming to the Lord at this time. But they were coming from other cultures. Great growth had happened in this church. And even through these trials of the apostles, the church had only produced more disciples. And growth is a good thing. It's said, and as some have calculated, that there could actually be at the moment of, that Luke is describing here, around 20,000 followers of Jesus, a part of this Jesus movement. But the, the thing that we notice here is that Luke doesn't use numbers. And uh, I pointed this out last week. He, he shifts from giving us totals to just saying uh, multitudes. And many times it's the numbers that we can get caught up in when we're a part of a fellowship or we're in leadership or we're ministering. We might ask those questions, how many were here this week? Or how many showed up Wednesday night or at small groups? Or how many? How many? And... The thing is, is that numbers are a good thing. We want to see people coming to know Jesus. We want to see people uh, following Jesus and attending faithfully the gatherings of the church. It's good, and growth is, is a desirable thing to see. But at times, we can look at these numbers as a measure of success, and that's not always the case. There are plenty of huge organizations that are leading people completely astray after a false Jesus, after a false Messiah. But what we do want to look at is 
the maturity, the growth, the quality of the people that are coming. That's what we want to grow in. We want to grow in quality. Luke points out to us earlier on that it's the Lord that actually adds to the church. In, in chapter 2, verse 27, or 47. And Paul actually says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 3, 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. These men ministered and they did what God had called them to do, but it was God who brought people to the church. So it's neither he who plants that's anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. What we need to be concerned about is the quality. Are those who are coming growing in faith and maturity, service and in witness, when those things are right and the church numbers increase, that's when we know that the work is of God and it's not some scheme of man. Now, even good growth doesn't exempt the church from speed bumps. Issues will arise that need to be addressed and solutions determined. These are growing pains. A healthy church will still grow, go through them. And we see one described here. It says there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Why? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We see the Hellenists. Uh, who were the Hellenists? These were Jews of Greek culture and speech. Uh, a Hellenist was a Jew by birth or religion, but spoke Greek and used chiefly of foreign Jews and proselytes, whether converted to Christianity or not. So Hellenist isn't, it's not a Christian term. It was to describe Jews who were, uh, who were of the Greek culture and speech. We see them later on persecuting the church. Uh, in Antioch, in the book of Acts, sorry. But remember back in Acts chapter 2 when the church was birthed and the Holy Spirit came on that day of Pentecost? It says that Jews from every nation under heaven were gathered in Jerusalem at that time. And it was from this group, people from all these surrounding cultures that were Jewish but bringing culture with them, uh, that the church was birthed. And so this church began as distinctly Jew, but was a cultural mix. And I love that. I love seeing the different cultures that the Lord brings to one body. Oftentimes, unless you're in some really far off lands, do you, uh, do you only see one culture represented? But the Lord in, in, in the American church, we should see a multicultural church. We should see, uh, if, if a church is only one, based in one culture, I think there's something going on that's not right. And not always the case, but sometimes. But because cultures were mixing, because these different backgrounds were gathering together in this new movement, it did produce challenges. And the church grew in spite of these, but they came to light. Now, it says that the Hellenists, or the Hebrews, there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now this word complaint describes a murmuring or a grumbling. It's not just this verbalized uh, complaint, like I like to write a formal complaint and, and turn it in. It's, uh, one translator used or said it's secret complaining. Now that adds a lot to what's going on here, right? 
It's showing that something, this point of frustration or this feeling of wrong that occurred in the Hellenists, they were discouraged with their situation and, and, uh, and even maybe been provoked in their spirit to think that they were made less than the Jews. And what it did, what it produced was this grumbling among themselves. Remember in Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites, uh, they, were, they had been um, saved out of slavery in Egypt. And at that point in Exodus 16, they were two and a half months into their journey from Egypt. And we were told that the whole congregation complained against Moses and Aaron. They said, if we'd only died back in Egypt, if we had meat to eat, or where we had meat to eat and bread all that we wanted. They were remembering the good old days before they had made this exchange and followed, the, followed Yahweh and Moses to freedom. And then they started to complain against Moses and Aaron. You brought us out to the wilderness to kill us with hunger. That was, that was the complaint that was coming up. Wow, okay, you know. You were in slavery, but now, you know. But at this point, the Lord says he will provide for them daily what they needed. The Lord responded to these complaints of the Israelites and that it would actually be a test if they would walk in his law or not. That was the reason the Lord allowed it to get to this point. They were given directions on how to gather the food that God would provide to see if they would listen to him. Now, Moses actually explains to the Israelites that their complaints were not against him and Aaron, but against the Lord in Exodus 16, 8. It says, Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread for the full. But, or for the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Now, complaining, it, it, it leads to many serious things in the church. I thought it was interesting. Pastor Greg shared a portion of Corinthians that describes Israel and the things we are to learn from them, and complaining is one of them. It leads to division among people, and that's where this was beginning to develop in this early church. It leads to backbiting. It leads to distrust. It sometimes... Will, will draw correction from the Lord. It was something that was occurring among the disciples that the apostles had become aware of. This whispering, this backbiting, this complaining. And what was the reason? Well, it wasn't a bad one. They were being neglected. They're widows. The Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And we could see why this complaint would arise. Feelings of less importance. Their needs weren't being met. Or their needs were just as serious as the Jewish widows, weren't they? It was a legitimate concern. But what was not right was the way that they were complaining. That it was a secret, behind-the-scenes one. They weren't bringing the difficulty to the apostles. They were complaining secretly among themselves fostering this complaint with others who felt offended too. Misery always finds company, right? I don't know if that's how that saying says it, but anyways, yeah. 
mulling over the frustration with others who didn't agree with how things were being handled. We ourselves have to be on guard for this. This is something that we are totally susceptible to as much as the early church was. This type of complaining, it creates divisions, as Pastor Greg said in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's the exhortation of the church. But we also know that complaining, it's a carnal thing. It's a fleshly thing. It's, It's the thing that happens when you don't know the Lord. You are still carnal in 1 Corinthians 3.3. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Ephesians, Paul goes on to say, Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steals... Stole still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We see that this type of complaining can uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God and prohibit Him from moving among the church, among the family of God. And we're to strive to be forgiving towards one another. We also see... In, at, or in uh, Isaiah 58, starting in verse 6, uh, Isaiah is correcting Israel for the way they've been behaving and what they've been doing and how they think they're worshiping the Lord, but they have not, and how they've been neglecting the needs of others. It says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of, the wicked, of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring your house, bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from their own from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call And the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. Oftentimes we resort to complaining before we even pray, or as Isaiah puts it here, calling out to the Lord. We need to ask ourselves when we find complaints arising within us, when we're tempted to 
to find somebody to complain about something, we need to ask ourselves, from what place is this complaint coming? Why is this in me? Can this complaint be dealt with by talking to somebody who can help? Not, don't misunderstand me when I say that. I'm not saying find somebody to complain to, but to ask yourself, how can I help this situation? Has the Lord equipped me with the means to help? Can I go to somebody and say, I've noticed this, how can I help? It's not turning to somebody and complaining, sharing the grief that you share together. But the, the need of the Hellenists was a proper one, and, and we really see why this was occurring and why the grumbling wasn't good. We see the apostles calling the multitude of disciples together in verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The apostles say, All right, y'all, church meeting time. We have a problem that we need to address. So both the Hebrews and the Hellenist disciples, they were all called together, and they met in this uh, probably in Solomon's porch, you know, where there was enough room for them all to be there, and they had to deal with this issue that was going on. And the disciples start off by saying, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, that sounds a little bit harsher than it actually means. Because the disciples had already been given and commissioned with the ministry that they were actively involved in. That was the ministry of the word and in prayer. You see, the needs of the church grew with the church. As the Lord added these different uh, peoples to with different levels of needs, it be, there was a lot more to do. And it became more than the apostles could, ima- could manage without leaving the ministry that they were first called to. Remember that the proceeds, this was just a few weeks ago, the proceeds of the possessions that were sold by the rich, whose feet were they laid at? The apostles. And so people were bringing these these proceeds to the apostles for them to distribute. And maybe in those earlier stages, it was still manageable for that the apostles to spread those things out and to, to divide those things. But as the church grew, the apostles found themselves limited in what they could do. And people were falling through the cracks. People were being overlooked. And they needed help. They needed the help of others to be able to minister to these needs. And so the response of the apostles wasn't from a place of self-importance, but understanding their calling. When they say it's not desirable, they weren't saying that they were too good to be ministering to widows or that that ministry was beneath them. No, when they say desirable, they're speaking in the eyes of God. It wouldn't please God for them to be consumed with this need when he had called them specifically to be ministering in the word. And to engage in, that, in this ministry to the extent that it needed to be would have only strained their ability to follow God's calling in the, that he gave them originally. To continue as they should be ministering and in the word and in prayer. They needed help 
to do what God had called them to do and to minister to the needs of the widows. You see that? The coming alongside of the apostles, the need for help was to enable them to do what God called them to do, but also to meet the needs of those that the Lord brought to the church. So in the, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, they go on in verse 3 to say, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the disciples were uh, asked them, or the apostles spoke to the disciples and said, provide seven men from among you. These weren't going to be some outside hires. They were going to bring in someone to, to give advice on how they should organize all of this so that the apostles can still do both tasks. These were going to be men that they knew, that they had interactions with. Men who are part of the family, the fellowship, had been there probably for a while, if not from the beginning. And the apostles give a criteria for this choice. What's the first thing we see? Of good reputation. This was their witness among people. This was their character that had already been proven through various situations that was observable by other uh, disciples. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. It's a little bit, he's applying this to false prophets, but I believe this is true of believers as well. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or from figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So character is seen for the good or the bad. And we were, look, they were told to look for men of good reputation. And the second was full of the Holy Spirit. The, this witness to their surrender to the Holy Spirit. Their reputation was tied into this being full, of being flexible, being led by the Holy Spirit. They displayed His fruit in their lives. And they don't, no doubt ministered out of that to the needs of others. And I love this word full because it reminds us of an overflowing cup. They were always abounding in the work of the Spirit. And others were the recipients of it. And then the last criteria is wisdom. James tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. 
Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you see why wisdom was so important for these men to have? They were going to need an impartial heart. They were going to need humility. They were going to need the ability and the willingness to serve. When, the, when it got hard, when there were complaints. And these men would be appointed over these, this need. And they were to be given this ministry or this service to care for wid- widows. Now, we get a picture here, though it's not overtly stated, of some of the first deacons in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes the roles that are found within a church, the roles of elders and of deacons. Elders were those who were ordained by God with the oversight of the church, who ministered in leadership, ministering in the word or or they taught, in administrations, etc. They had those, those leadership roles. Now, a deacon was more or less described as a ministering servant. It often was used in the scriptures side by side with the term elder or overseer. And for the deacon, the care of the churches fell upon them as helpers of the elders who held distinct offices. So we have uh, overseers who, who have a specific role, the elders, in a responsibility to teach and to care for the flock. And then there's the, the deacons who were to come alongside and support uh, taking care of more of the practical things. Maybe they, it doesn't mean that they only did that, but it just means that that was the things that they took care of. So that enabled the elders to do the, the job that they were called to, to fulfill the role that they were called to. And it appears here that these seven were some of those first deacons in the early church. Although they aren't called deacons by name, they fulfill the function of that role. And some have made the connection with the the, uh, comment of the apostles in verse 2 that talk about serving tables. That a deacon, uh, as part of the definition, means to serve tables. And so uh, some have made a connection there as well. But they took on the practical needs of the ministry to enable the apostles to do what God had called them to do. Now, there are many areas of need in the church that the pastor simply cannot handle. He can't be. He's in one place, all the, or in many places at once. Now, if he did, it would actually take him away from his chief calling as the Lord has called him to the ministry of the word, to prayer, to shepherding the flock, of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And as the congregation grows, so does the need for qualified men and women uh, to meet those various needs of the church that enable the pastor to do what the God has called him to do. And so we might ask ourselves today, do we know what God has called us to do in his church? Is there a need that you are qualified for? Every congregation has them. So to what extent are you engaged in the body of Christ that God has called you to be a part of? And I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I didn't want to read through the whole thing. But where Paul is describing the body, the church as one body, 
with many parts. And each part has its role. Some are more prominent, like a nose on your face. Some are more hidden, like your armpit. I don't know where that analogy was going, but... But it serves a role, right? It's part of the body. It's no less important. But what part are you playing? What part are are you fulfilling as a part of this body? We see in verse 4 that the apostles were going to continue to do what God had called them to do. And they were going to give themselves continually to prayer. You see, oftentimes this is the first thing that goes when we get busy. And Jesus exemplified how important this is for all of us, not much, or much less even ministry leaders, but we see Jesus himself drawing away to pray, illustrating the importance of a time committed to prayer. We see the apostles maintaining this commitment as we've looked through the book of Acts, going up to the temple at the hours of prayer. It's important to pray, and it oftentimes is the first thing to go. They needed time to pray. They needed time to grow closer to the Lord, to stay aligned with God's will, to stay focused on the ministry that God had called them to, to stay strong in the Lord. All the persecution that they were going up against that was coming upon them. We just read about them suffering beatings. That was 39 lashes, uh, 40 lashes minus one, you know, 39 lashes, which tore apart their backs for the sake of preaching the gospel. You can't go into that type of persecution without being strong in the Lord. And, and being strong in the Lord means that you've spent time with him. You've been in prayer with him. To receive, they needed to pray to receive wisdom and guidance. We see that they had been exercising that, being able to address this problem so quickly. And they were going to continually keep to the ministry of the Word. And we've already talked about this a little bit, but this involved them daily teaching, studying, going into the temple, instructing, continuing to bear witness to Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And they went from house to house, instructing the newer believers, uh, building up the ones that had been there for the few years. And this word continually, it just describes a steadfast and a faithfulness of the apostles to do this work. This was their desire to be found faithful, to do what God had commissioned them to do in the ministry of the word and the prayer. And what's awesome, and we see in verse 5, is that this, this pleased the multitude. How often can you please a multitude of people? Not, not easily. But the multitude was pleased by this answer, showing that it was led by the Spirit of God. And so they chose men for themselves. And it says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen, I believe Luke, as we've seen before, remember he mentioned Barnabas? 
as one who was uh, the son of encouragement. He had, uh, had sold some property and had brought it laid it at the feet of the apostles. We're going to learn about Barnabas as the book goes on. Now, Luke is mentioning Stephen as one of these men because Luke is going to mention everything that happened with Stephen as we look next week. But he would write about him in this very next section of this chapter. And it's said that he was a man full of faith. In 1 Timothy 3.13, it says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. See, being full of faith is connected to great boldness. And this is what will be displayed through Stephen in our very next passage next week as we gather together, Lord willing. We'll see Stephen become the first martyr of the church. And with great boldness, he proclaims the gospel at the expense of his own life, full of faith. And it's also said of him that he was full of the Holy Spirit. This could be seen in the way that he ministered. In verse 8 of this same chapter, he does signs and wonders. In verse 10, he speaks with wisdom. And then it's also said of him, in his death, as he was dying, he was full of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, a man who God would go on to continue to use in a mighty way, began by serving widows. It didn't matter what it was that God had called him to do. He's going to do it to his fullest. And God would raise him up and use him. And that's what we're exhorted today. Whatever God has called us to do, be faithful in it. Be faithful to do it. And we have Philip here uh, listed next, who is also acknowledged because we will see him later. And then we have uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas. And we don't actually know much about these uh, fellows here. But what I did think was interesting is the meaning of their names and how that may have had some bearing on, you know, maybe their testimony or how they were already functioning in with the body of Christ. But Prochorus was a leader of praise is what that means. Maybe he was a worship leader. Maybe he led the hymns in some of the small groups or something. We had Nicanor who was victorious and maybe he overcame some great sin or, or some... Uh, great obstacle. Maybe it spoke of a healing that he experienced from the Lord. And then we see Timon, whose name means honorable or valuable. He was valuable because of how he served within the church and, and what he brought to the congregation. And then we see Parmenas, who, which means one who abides. Somebody who is faithful, who is steadfast. We don't know much about them, but we do learn a little bit more about Nicholas, and, uh, whose name means submission. And he was a proselyte from Antioch, which means that he was converted from Ju uh, a Gentile who converted to Judaism. And then from there, we find him following Jesus. So he received Jesus as the Messiah. But I believe that Antioch is also mentioned because it would become 
a home base as such for the church as it continued to expand outside of Jerusalem. And so we're seeing these connections. Luke's lining up. He's given us a little bit of uh, foreknowledge um, fore of what's going to happen down the line. Foreshadowing. That was the word I was looking for. And so all of these men, what their names do mean uh, are is that they are Greek names. And they are most likely Hellenists themselves. And so the role of deacon, as I said before, it doesn't mean that a person's always in that uh, role of service in that specific ministry, but it does show their willingness to serve. And we see in the ministry of Stephen and Philip later on, that Stephen's address to the, the religious rulers, it's actually one of the lengthiest messages recorded by Luke and Acts. You think about all, we might have more of Paul's words recorded, but we don't have the extent of one message that Paul taught as we do in Stephen. Stephen knew the word. He knew his Lord. And when he was placed before these religious leaders, the Lord raised him up and gave him a platform to declare the full gospel to these men. And Philip, we see him later, he's called the evangelist. It says that an angel appeared to Philip and sent him to go and engage with that Ethiopian eunuch, with the gospel. We see the Spirit taking him away after that situation to uh, Azotus, where he preached the gospel there. And so we see these men continuing on in ministries, but were available and called upon at that present moment to meet those needs. And so these men were pulled together and they were set before the apostles. And it says that the apostles prayed and laid hands on them. And this signifying that the apostles recognized the men who the disciples chose and set them apart for this special service. Setting them apart for this task that was the need. And what was the result? We see that the word of God spread. The disciples continued to multiply in Jerusalem. The word was going out. The apostles ministered to the word, ministered the word, and the deacons were serving. All was in order. They got past the first speed bump. They're cruising along until the next one. <laughs> Luke includes a praise report at the end of this, this passage here. And let's look at what it says here. It says, Then the word of God spread, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's a praise report that he includes in here. You see, we have these religious leaders who have seen this ministry, have watched these disciples day in and day out teaching and preaching over the past few years. And they begin to respond to the message and embrace Jesus as the Messiah and join the church. These were men who were described as withstanding Jesus. They withstood him. Let me read this quote from a commentator. It says, A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is one of the greatest miracles wrought by the grace of Christ. That a person so intent on the destruction of Jesus, his apostles, his doctrine, should at last espouse that doctrine. It's astonishing. 
And that they who had withstood the evidence of the miracle of Christ, his resurrection, should have yielded to the doctrine of his death and resurrection is worthy of note. And from this we may learn that it is not by miracles that sinners are converted unto God, but by the preaching of Christ dying for their offenses and rising again for their justification. That message of the gospel being faithfully preached and taught day in, day out. See, that's what saves anybody who comes. It's that the grasping hold of that message, of the gospel, that Christ came and he died for our sins, and that on the third day he rose again in power. And we might be what... This commentator says, justified, meaning just as we never sinned. We can be pure in the eyes of God through the miracle of Christ's death and resurrection. And so we rejoice as we read what God has done. That many of these priests were obedient to the faith. As Luke was so excited and shared the praise report of what was going on by the hands of the disciples as the apostles were able to be diligent in the work that God had called them to do in teaching the word and in prayer, we see that the priests were responding to the message. So, we've gone through a few different topics this morning, huh? Growing pains, different cultures in the church, complaining, the need to do what the Lord has called you to do as part of this body, the church of God. I pray that the Lord has spoken to each one of us this morning in various ways. I'm always being spoken to as I study this might not be in the same way that he speaks to you as an individual or you as an individual but God's word does not return void and so let's pray we'll have the worship team come forward we'll close in our last song here Father we come before you and we thank you for your word Lord, it, it, as I've already said, Lord, it doesn't return void. It, it accomplishes what you set out for it to do. But Lord, it's also the thing that exhorts us, Lord, that corrects us, that gives us instruction. And I pray, Lord, that, that the Holy Spirit, Lord, would just apply these things, Lord, within our hearts. That whatever it was that you put your finger on in each one of us today, Lord, that we would uh, recognize it, Lord, and, and respond accordingly. Lord, that you would be glorified. We know that when we do what you've called us to do, Lord, that there are great things that you will accomplish, Lord. As these men were raised up to take care of the needs of the widows. 
Lord, there was peace and there was unity. The, the apostles were able to concentrate on your word, Lord, and the calling that you called them to. Freeing them to uh, continue on ministering, Lord, which in turn poured over into the lives of these priests who responded to the message. Lord, every person in your church is knit together in such a way to bring you glory, Lord, and to reach the community, Lord. I pray that you would stir our hearts Lord, to do, Lord, what you have called us to do, to stand up, Lord, and to be a part of it, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, your grace, Lord. Lord, because... Uh, Lord, I know that there are uh, things, Lord, within our church, growing pains that we are going through. And I pray that you would give us wisdom on how to handle those things. That we might uh, grow, Lord, and, and minister for your glory. Lord, then that it might be evident among us, Lord, that we are full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. We're bringing you honor and glory, Lord. Lord, we just commit this uh, time to you, Lord, and ask that you continue to do your work uh, in us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.